episode of Bringing Down the Grindhouse. God damn. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to talk about scary stories to tell in the dark and all the creepy tales they have inside of there. How's it going, John? It's going really well. I enjoyed reading. Well, actually, I got the I got the three book set, so I ended up going through all three books of it. And I got reminded of stories that were locked away somewhere in my head, and then I, I immediately recognized it as soon as I started reading some of the words on it. So Aren't it was a cool experience. What? Oh, because I bought it? Uh, <laughs> three books at Well, Ooh. Mitch and I both bought it. You're the one who didn't support the artist here. <laughs> here's, here's the deal. So I went on Amazon, and I was like, all right, I only need the first book. Right. I only need the first scary stories to tell in the dark. And I found it on there, and it was like 50 bucks for some fucking reason. Whoa. And then this three-book set for me because I, I got Prime because I bought a video card not too long ago. Yeah. And they randomly got Prime for like a month. And so I had a discounted one. It was like 13 bucks for three books, all three of them. Dang, you paid 13 for this? $13, man. I feel ripped off. I went, it to, was, uh, yeah, I went to Barnes & Noble and paid like 20 bucks. Yeah. So I, $7 right. discount. Damn. But, but here, the thing with these books, though, is they were like, they were like mysterious on their own. The artwork was really creepy. Right. They're written in the 80s as well. I didn't even know that until I like read them recently. Right. And the interesting thing is like when I was in school, these books were like hidden on the bookshelf of certain teachers. Yeah, definitely. Books and whatnot and like, in our bookshelves. And they were always really dusty and old and all bent up like they'd been used tons and tons of times before. And the artwork was really creepy and weird, but it always like excited me. I was always stoked on it. I was like, these are fucking cool looking this is exactly and, why i wanted yeah. to do these because we I, all have nostalgic memories of these especially if we're within the same age group unless you're weird like percy well i grew up i'm in, just kidding <laughs> why so why didn't you why didn't you get sort of initiated into some of these books did well, you just not see them i grew up in a super like christian household and i went to a christian school for like my primary years like i guess like first through fifth yeah so books like this weren't accepted oh so I couldn't you read couldn't, anything you couldn't like even this. go through so some yeah like when I came out here to college, it was one of the first times I'd ever heard of this book series. Okay. I was like 18, 19 at the time. Wait, yeah. where were you coming from again? Like from LA. From LA. Okay. <laughs> I forgot. What? No, I was like, what do you mean? Where do I come from? No, no. Like, my mother? Right. Like, <laughs> my mother's <laughs> vagina. No, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> so yeah, so I'd never actually um, read these before. So this was my first time reading through it. I remember when the first time I ever encountered them the like the covers of them really freaked me out like i was like wow these are some of the pictures in it while i'm like sitting there reading i'm like oh fuck okay cool like i'm normally not fucked up by things like that but i think there's like some like really weird repressed part of my mind that like brought up a memory of seeing this as a child but i had no idea what it yeah. was it's got to be the <laughs> the picture that we usually saw which was the the like severed head with a little pipe in its mouth i always thought it was like a clown house Yep. Yeah. Percy just brought it up. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly it, it. Or it looks like a, a head growing out of the ground that's yep. smoking a pipe or something along yeah. those lines. Is that not what it is? Oh, I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Well, before we get into it a little bit more, I want to make sure everybody knows who's here and whose voices you're listening to. So I'm one of your hosts. I'm Jonathan. We also have Persephone as well as Mitch and our other friend, Dorian. I am a pig person. Yeah, we support um, <laughs> all pig people that exist in this world. And so in order to um, express pig awareness, we brought on a pig person. I hate this. Please do not condescend me. <laughs> I immediately thought of uh, Minecraft. The ones that like squeal when you're in the hell version of whatever that they have. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, I know what you're saying. The listener doesn't. The listener might. <laughs> <laughs> well you know what i feel like minecraft is one of those games where there's a pretty large like age group where people are playing it it could be anywhere from like a tiny child who just figured out how to use an ipad to like older people with like full pc builds who are playing it so i watched a video of somebody who recreated the entire starship enterprise from star trek in Minecraft. It's like a 1-1 one, one scale, right? And it's a re yes, it's ridiculous and there's no way that a 12-year-old did that. There's no way. That's like a f Oh, oh, wait. Oh, oh, wait. I shouldn't say this because of everything. Um, but uh <laughs> actually one of my many jobs is I teach Minecraft to children. And uh they are a thousand times smarter than us. Uh they produce more impressive things than we do. And one day they will kill us in our deathbeds. 
They will not be able to wait for it. They will build strange, strange contraptions that will crush our heads slowly while all making uh, scale models of uh, U.S. buildings that have been washed away by the floods we allowed to happen by ignoring climate change. <laughs> At least we've got some really what good... What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Just a slow, what, what the fuck? <laughs> Kids are very impressive. Pig people, am I right, ladies and gentlemen? You can't trust them. I got so thrown off from what I was about to say. <laughs> that took me so far off track that I was like, shit, what was I even going to talk about for that one? Why did I even mention that? So, oh, you know what? No, I do remember. Scratch that. I rem- The reason why I thought about that was because reading through it, I kept forgetting that these are considered children's books. Yeah, I was talking to someone about the podcast today, and I was like, oh, you know, we're doing scary stories to read in the dark. And this guy, like, straight up was like, oh, shit, are you serious? Like, I was like, he was forced to read these as a child in school. Like, it was mandatory reading for him in a class he was in. And he was talking about how it was so strange because he was so fucked up by it as a child. He was like, we had to read this book. And, like, looking at the pictures as, like, an eight-year-old, you're like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like. The the paintings the paintings and illustrations of uh, of Stefan Gamel are are just absolutely mind blowingly good. He's so creative. It's like it's like it's like horror watercolor, and yeah. I've never seen anything like that like like that before these books came out. And he's very very original like sort of style that I've never seen. And so that was what was always very iconic about these books. You should uh, go look for his other art books. I went online and researched some of his art. And it's almost all exactly like this. But some of them are scarier than what they put into this book because they were trying to sort of not put the scariest ones for the children's book. But these are still pretty disturbing for some of them going through it. Actually, the that's something that I really find interesting about these books is the fact that the all of the images have a certain gestalt appearance that makes them seem more frightening than they actually are. If you actually look at any one of the images, you'll notice that they're all pretty frightening, but we all see images of skulls and murder and all, all, all the literal depictions that you see inside of any one of these images all the time, and they're not as frightening. But the thing that I think is important about these is that they tell a few different lines, right? Where you have both images that are of something that is innately frightening, but there's also something comic about them. Uh, there's also a lot of weird play between light and dark. A lot of it is just blank space. Uh, so it's a lot of it is is based on the idea w- of w- what isn't necessarily seen, which brings in the whole kind of it's it's trite at this point in time to bring it up, but uh, things are scarier when you don't necessarily see them. Uh, but the important thing with this is that just enough of it is articulated. Um, you guys did a podcast on Hereditary a little while ago, and that this is what I liked about that movie. But you can see everything that's frightening in in. The, the, the kind of screen there and you can see everything that's frightening inside of each one of these images but there's just enough left out that there's something just awful about them that you can't quite put your finger on especially as a child yeah. so it's just it's mathematically built to fuck up your brain uh that made me think of so yeah i remembered i remembered some of the images as i was going through it um from when i first saw it when i was younger and then all of a sudden, it all came back to me of remembering that image attached to the story that I was reading with it. And so it was, it was weird, interesting, and I uh, sort of creeped myself out reading them earlier because I ended up reading it uh, really early in the morning at my job, at my desk. And I'm the only one in the office, so I kind of freaked out when somebody came in and like slammed one of the doors. But I also listened to the audiobook. They have an audiobook for this, and the guy who narrates it is really good. And so I would recommend going and finding the audiobook on YouTube because he goes through all three books. So it's like three hours of content. An interesting thing to note about a lot of these stories is that some of them are collections of old folklore stories. Some of them are collections of stories that are written by like teenagers, like people who are like like 14, 16 years old, like in there. A lot of them are written by actually written literally by children. And so they're like horror horror fiction for that generation or horror fiction for children by children. And that's a very interesting thing I want to note. Like the um the hearse was was 
was not necessarily an example of this, but was an example of like an older, like an older song. You're talking about the the Hearst song. The Hearst song, yes. Yeah. It was it was a represent. It was a uh, it's like a retelling or reskinning of an old World War One song, right? That was sung by the soldiers in England and America. Yeah. At the time, in order for them to be okay with the concept of dying. Okay. Well, before we before we start taking some of them apart, I want to know which ones were your guys' favorites. So. Percy, you mentioned a few that you had read that you liked a lot. What was like one or two of them that you really liked? I really enjoyed The Wendigo, and I really enjoyed Slithery Bee. Um, but I would also have to say that the uh, the white dress one, the new dress, white satin dress, the white I think satin it's what dress, called. yeah. And then um, her song. Which one? Oh, the her song. Okay. Why did you like the satin one, the white satin dress? Because I've heard so many variations of that story and as someone that's also very interested in like the death industry and has like a small background and like embalming and like understanding all of that it was very interesting to like really see that I was like oh shit like that's funny and all the variations I've heard of it are so interesting like I didn't know it originated in this book I don't know if it, this is where it's originated uh, from but I like, don't think so no. okay just like hearing it I was like oh shit like I'm super familiar with this like there may actually be a notation that I missed where it tells you some of the origin stories for where these came from. But I that sort of theme kind of ran through all of them. They were like a collection of stories that have been told before. So some of them might be similar. <laughs> um, so the white satin dress is the one way a girl goes and um, she can't. There's a like a party coming up, like a dance party. I don't think it's it was like a, prom. It's a family dance. Yeah. Uh, not a family, a uh, school dance. Um, and she couldn't buy a dress. So her mom recommends that she rents a dress. So she goes to a pawn store and she rents one and she like dances and at the end of the night she feels really tired um and then she, they lay her down and when they come back in the morning they find out that she had died because the dress had embalming fluid in it and then her like she absorbed it i'm assuming through sweating and everything and um that she died because the dress had been stolen off of a body right before it had been bur- buried it's actually something that's really common in a lot of these stories is there are these themes of the problems with origin um, so you see that in The Thing, you see it in The White Satin Dress, you see it actually in the way that the stories are built themselves and where they're sourced from. Uh, but each one of these stories uh, is reaching back to either something mentioned in their own narratives or something that uh, is implied within the narrative or even outside of that uh, diegetically into something that, that happens before the story is even told or the, the just the idea that the story can be told in so many different ways and it has been told in so many different ways over time um but they all kind of harken back to this idea that there's some more primal element that we're not able to perceive that is present in all of the texts right where there's because everything is always reaching back there's always this point um of 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 terror somewhere that can't be perceived in the text itself that's always implied uh which is what's present in the art too i think what really makes me think about these stories in regards to what you're talking about is there is a lot to take away and to analyze for it but the initial intention was to write it for children and so i wonder what was like what was the point why were they writing some of these horror stories for kids and was it like for a certain purpose i guess I think kids, uh, Stephen King actually uh, writes a little bit about this in some of his nonfiction work, though I'm not a huge fan of him. Um, but he talks a lot about how childhood is this weird kind of dreamlike space that is and is not connected to actual life. It almost exists as pre-life, you know? Uh, and so somehow children are already kind of tied to the past, uh, they, I don't want to say children are our future, but no, they're, they're far more, uh, kind of elements of what horrible things we've done. <laughs> <laughs> this is also like the third or fourth time that children have been mentioned on the podcast in connection to horror. Uh, what was the, what was the first podcast? Is it, was it ugly children? It was, yes, to, uh, to reiterate, <laughs> uh, I, uh, there is a fascination with children being frightening yeah. in horror movies. And uh, to reiterate that point, you got like Children of the Corn, Hereditary, kind of played the movie as like this little girl is going to be like they at least advertised it that way. Like right. this little girl is going to be very scary. There's stuff like the omen, whereas a child that's infested with Satan yeah. is going to murder everyone because it's Satan. 
Percy, you mentioned um, besides the Hearst song, what was the other one you said? The, the Slithery. Oh, Slithery D. Slithery D. Why did you like Slithery D? It's a comic, and it was really cute. Like, the way it was written and the timing of it and everything when you read it, it's, like, very rhythmic. And then it's like, I get eaten at the end. Uh-huh. Wait, so you were reading these stories to Mitch while you guys were driving over here? I was. I was. Uh, so did you actually do, did you sing for the Hearst song? Um, did I? I don't remember you if did. I, yes, I did sing the Hearst song to him. What'd you think, Mitch? After being, technically being in a band with Dorian. Right. And doing musical stuff with Dorian multiple times. As always, it was a fantastic performance. We're going to have Dorian do special readings for these stories. And I'll, I'll be sure to drop them throughout so that you guys can hear the story and know what we're referencing. That way we can uh, have sort of a reference point and you don't have to go and find the book and everything. But the Her song was really good because uh, it's really upbeat sort of in a way that they had created a song, even though it's talking about like a decomposing body basically and gets into some pretty like specific detail on what happens to your body as it decomposes. The truth and finality of death is something that's really heavily weighed in on in, on that song. Um, and its history, which I have basically blabbed before, is already, you know, is already evident. That's another thing that's interesting about not just these texts, but the fact that they're meant for children. Um, and a reason that they're meant for children or, or an artifact of it, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I think it's both. I think usually the answer is both. Um but the fact that so much of what's inside of this uh, is so bizarrely lighthearted, one of the reasons that it's uh, there's so much of that interplay between things being terrifying and lighthearted is because of the fact that um, in order for... It's not just the idea that, like, for light there has to be darkness and all the philosophy 101 kind of bullshit there's yeah like balancing it out exactly but there, there there's something more important about these kind of balances which is that one pushes the other one forward um and it's this ongoing uh kind of propulsion system that that these things have where the more lighthearted you make something that's terrifying the more terror has to kind of fill in and so they propel one another into this kind of state like scary children where you have to try to reconcile both but because you can't they both just escalate uh, did you guys read these books as children? Yes. So you do have like some memories of these stories. I I remember like the Big Toe story. I remember the Dead Man's Head story and how when I was very young and I read it, I was like, that sounds like a really fun game to play when I was really young. Um, I thought that. This is the one where they feel all of the body they parts. They feel all right? of the different body parts of the dead guy. Yeah. These are his bones. This is his nose. Uh, I enjoy that like the that. book kind of gave you instructions for some of these. Like, if you're going to be telling them to a group of people, it gives you, like, okay, make sure you jump at this person, scream at this time. It, it's almost, like, sort of like a um, like an introduction to like, to, like, storytelling for people and also, like, how to, like, add cool effects and sort of, like, acting as well. So this book could have definitely been probably for a lot of actors and whatnot nowadays could have been a starting point for them where they said, Oh, I want to perform these for my friends. This sounds like a blast to do. Right. But when they're like 10 or 12 years old, you know, and they get really into it, you could probably get some adults scared with some of these. If you do the, the timing right with when you scream or jump at someone. Yeah. In, in fact, uh, when it comes to performing these things, here's a, it's a bizarre story. Uh, but I come from a family of, uh, ongoing and intense mental illness okay. uh which is a great way to start a story that's more or less comical mm-hmm. uh, but i remember i don't remember which book it was wi- it was in and i don't remember uh which story it was but i remember that there is a story in one of these three books about conquering a witch or trying to conquer a witch by nailing something to a an ash tree i think it was um and my mother uh was convinced that getting rid of some details here um that someone we knew was a witch and so i led her through uh this kind of ritualistic pattern of producing kind of that ash tree effigy um as if this was a non-fiction text uh and of course the person did not stop being a witch because my mother's crazy uh and also i'm a child uh and so anything that i'm doing is probably wrong anyway 
but I don't know. I, I was thought was that it was funny that that these things, e- even even as a child, like I knew these weren't real. But there's a certain reality to anything the child experiences uh, that r- reads or otherwise that they they come into their life, and because life itself isn't real and dreamlike, uh, everything kind of has an equal footing in a way. Did you just casually tell me that you were part of a ritual as a child? Uh, I was part of a lot of childhood rituals. Uh, my parents are actors, or were, in some uh, varying degrees. So one of my favorite stories that was read from this book was um, The Walk was one of them. And The Walk was really, really silly. And I didn't read... I only read chapter three of this book, and I was kind of very lukewarm about some of them, except for The Wendigo. The Wendigo is a really good folklore story. Um, and it's a very old one, too. And it comes from many different countries who report, who report similar horror stories like, like this one. Um, that was very interesting. I loved the whole, like, like, my feet are burning while she's walking through ice and whatnot. And I always found that very interesting. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, and, but The Walk, going back to that one, was a really interesting, like, it was like more or less like a, like a, like a really short bit. But I really liked how the language was like, uh, it centered a lot on repetition it centered a lot on it just like constantly came at you constantly until it has like this climax at the very end where it just everyone just screams randomly. And I think it'll be really funny to hear Dorian's interpretation of that later tonight because it's hilarious. And um, I liked it because of the hilarity, but also because it just it will freak you out and it gets that jump in energy. I noticed the repetition throughout the book, even into the second and third books. And it was interesting to read it and then hear the audiobook where the narrator went through some of it because the repetitions allow him to say things in a different way. And so it was a good way to like build up to the ending, which was usually a scream, a scare, or some sort of jump, or just a conclusion that you were not expecting, so some sort of twist at the end. Repetition is an important thing in, um, I mean, all kinds of media, obviously. There's a reason that so many rhetorical uh, rhetorical methods are based on repetition. But the rhetorical mission of uh, repetition inside of this kind of context, I feel, bringing back uh, the idea of children, uh, I'm going to get into pretentious, complex things, but boiled down, there's this psychoanalytic concept called the signifying chain. And essentially the idea is that every experience that you have is based on your perception of certain symbols in your life. And symbols can be anything uh, from the color of someone's hair to the things that you like to eat to literally anything that you perceive because perception is so subjective in so many ways. Um, well, this book was doing that, literally. It was piecing together all of the symbols into something that's really ri- visceral for children, especially when you're reading it at that age and you haven't fully formed an opinion on a lot of things. Right. So when you're going through it and you're starting to like uh, hear some of the words and read them, it kind of gives you a certain feeling. But one of the important things about the symbol usage and repetition in the symbolic chain or the symbolizing chain or you know, the sy- symbolic order, it, it has, you know, these are all French translations, so it's it's a... Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it a thousand things. Uh, but uh, the important thing about that is that every symbol that you perceive is based on the perception of some previous symbol. Uh, because everything you perceive needs context in order for it to be perceived. Um, and this reaches back into your childhood and then into the kind of primal, even pre-childhood context, right? Where your memories are fuzzy or non-existent or even the abjection from your mother when you're born, right? And so everyone's lives are based on these symbolic experiences that exist from times that we don't even remember, right? Uh, Which is why horror does so well to repeat over and over and over again, because the fact that our our lives and everything we're afraid of and everything that we desire is based on these repetitions of ideas that reach back into something that we'll never actually be able to perceive, which is why things that aren't perceived are so terrifying. Because the fact that everything in our lives is based on that non-perception that is trying to consume us all the time. One thing I really liked about all the other stories in this book is, I think, and why I think it would appeal to children, and why I think it also proves it is often written by children, is or some of these stories are written by children, passed on through children, is the language is very, very simplistic. It it doesn't use a lot of very scientific-y words or anything like that. You're not reading a Lovecraft story here, (laughs) you know, but they're still very effective, though. Very effective. Not very, not incredibly wordy. Just like very, some of them are very punchy. They get right to the point, and then you will either feel 
the like you will feel the woo, or you won't. I love the descriptions of the sounds of what they're probably going to sound like. Oh, there's a specific name for that. Do you guys remember what it is? I can't. Re- I can't think of it right now. As onomatopoeia. There you go. That's it. It's a poetic yeah. device. Right. So it gives you an idea of what the sound is supposed to be like. So if you wanted to include sounds, like if you were going to record your own things, or if you're going to try to do it with a group of people, gives you an idea of what you can do that. And it, it actually makes me think of what you said earlier, Mitch, about the storytelling aspect of it. It gives you an opportunity to act out what's going on, to be able to do it with a group of people. So it's a very collective thing. Onomatopoeia actually also brings in a... It's a similar idea to the nonsense that I've already brought up. And everything I say tonight will be nonsense. Uh, but onomatopoeia... You are a literature major, so... Exactly, exactly. It's like a sociology major, but it makes even less sense. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to say less money. Also that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we both like to talk about how people should be and how people are and how we won't fix anything. Uh, but uh, onomatopoeia, uh, something important about that is that it's not only it's something that everyone can experience equally uh, as children, um, like woof. Of course, we know what woof is. Everyone understands woof. Everyone I've understands. Never heard a dog make that noise. Yeah. Well, actually, that's true. Uh, never have I heard that. I, I love, I love non-English onomatopoeia, but that's a different thing. Uh, like, like bzzzt is apparently the Tibetan onomatopoeia for like stubbing your toe. Oh. And it makes sense, kind of. Your funny bone, it's a bzzzt. But anyway. Uh, but the other important thing about onomatopoeia inside of these texts, uh, apart from the fact that everyone can kind of reach them and accept them as being a certain thing, uh, but it also makes it so that there's a literal thing in the world that has a really tight symbolic connection to a word that exists. And words innately always fail to describe the thing that they are, except for onomatopoeia, which actually bring it back into reality so a text that is so based on kind of ephemera and nonsense and people coming back back from the grave and then dying and not being dead and all these different things that don't actually fit into our world the fact that onomatopoeia is constantly in there makes it so that it's constantly dragged back into the real world and made more believable uh that makes me think of what mitch was getting at which was like the the specific use of the words and the language to kind of get an effect out of it and it made me think of a few of the stories that had lines that I really enjoyed that they went away from the simplistic language and decided to use certain words that you knew would be really descriptive and good for that. Uh, One of the ones I really liked was from the story, uh, um, what do you come for? And the body is described as, uh, as the old woman watched, the parts came together into a great gangling man. The man danced around and around the room faster and faster. He went, then he stopped and he looked into her eyes. A lot of them had this weird, whimsical things that would happen, and almost all of them included dead bodies dancing. That's that's an important thing. Uh, not just the dancing, because there's so much rhythmics inside of this, um, which innately rhythmics correspond to you know bodily processes, right? Which children are just beginning to experience. Heartbeats and the way that you walk and everything, these are all the entirety of a child's life, apart from what their mind is actually doing. But that's almost separate from the child. Um, but the the also the, the reconstruction of corpses that constantly happens, you know, corpses looking for parts of their bodies or bodies falling apart because they're together when they shouldn't be or bodies putting themselves together. Uh, this all also kind of harkens back to what it's like to be a child and to be learning your body. For the first time and then forgetting what you just learned and trying to do it over and over again like a child learning how to walk that's interesting that makes me think of how i was feeling about um the stories when i was going back through them because i was expecting it to be really simple kind of like children's bedtime stories where they're only like four or five sentences long but they're actually getting into some pretty realistic things that people have to deal with as they get older which includes death like mitch had mentioned earlier and so it made me think about what i wanted to know which was uh how did you guys feel going back through these was this something that you were remembering or was it something new kind of like what percy was experiencing because you hadn't really gone through these books do you read any other horror stories like on your own like i know you mentioned creepypasta in one of the other podcasts do you still continue to read those Mm mm-hmm 
I read a lot of crazy pasta. Um, I read a lot of like SCP stories. I don't what's know that? if you're secure, contain, uh, protect. It's the uh, wait. What's that? Oh man, that's like a whole podcast. Um, oh, it's so quick, it's like as well. So I mean, really, you can SCP is a writers. I would say it's like a fan base uh, creation mm-hmm. of basically monsters or different types of like entities that are put on different levels based on like their threat to society. Okay. So you might have some like the most popular one is one called peanut and it's this really weird looking thing in the game two people always have to have eye contact with it because if you don't it will like maim you like um but then it'll also go from like super weird ones to like there is a scp where it is a bunch of tomatoes that will like kill you if you make a really bad joke oh (laughs) like and then there's another one where it's like a vending machine from japan that like vends otherworldly shit from it when you put like coins and that stuff sounds like it. a cool short story to be able to have a vending machine that gives you weird shit do, like can you choose like does it have like a menu of what's no. in it or just shoots out random shit so wait i don't think i understand i don't think i understand the concept of the stories though like is this being built upon by like the community mm-hmm. oh, okay so i i didn't actually remember what you were talking about when you first brought it up but now my mind is lit ablaze again and i i, I remember everything but I, I've been, it's it's a guilty pleasure of mine, but I, I listen to a lot of creepypasta stuff on YouTube. I don't do so much reading of that because of the fact that I'm lazy and the reading I already do kills me. <laughs> uh, but um, the, so, so I, I guess the idea of these, and correct me if I'm wrong, please do, but the idea of them essentially is less that they're narratives and more that they're single kind of, like if you're playing a video game and if you fight an enemy and then you go into your inventory and it says this motherfucker is terrifying because he spits acid in your face and that's pretty much what they are it's like a pokedex of horrible shit a pokedex of horrible shit exactly that's (laughs) fucking beautiful uh but the thing that's awesome about these i think is, is is that anyone i mean of course the cool thing and the horrible thing about the internet is that anyone can add to it right mm-hmm. uh but the cool thing about the what uh, scps yeah, right? SCPs, yeah uh so the cool thing about those is that you have this ever developing list of these entities that don't exist but all necessarily reflect on some kind of cultural phenomena that the person's concerned with uh and so what were the ones you brought up uh, peanut which is that one where you have to like look at it right too i'll and bring up a picture because once you see the picture right. everyone will recognize what i'm talking about so what's what's interesting about two people having to view that um so two people if you're in a room with it you cannot have your back to it two people need to or at least one person has to have eyes on it because if not it will kill you if one person is not looking at, or if no one's looking <laughs> at it, it will come right. after you which yeah. is terrifying because then you have to trust someone else right and not only do you have to trust someone else, but it also invokes this terrifying idea that we all have in this world of kind of postmodern subjectivity, where if someone else is viewing something that you don't, or if you're viewing, even worse, if you're viewing something some something that someone else doesn't see, then you are either cast off, or you're not living uh, in an actual world, or you're crazy, or you're stupid, right? And then the the thing that produces random shit out of it right the vending machine that brings me back to like the the idea of the monkey paw (laughs) right where you 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 want something and i'm guessing because i I don't remember that one but i'm guessing that everything that it spits out is something that will eventually become horrible right yeah like it'll be like you'll get a bag of chips but then you open up the bag of chips and you're like oh shit there's something fucked up this is just toenails Yeah. (laughs) yeah oh god um so it's it it I am uh, biased and I always see everything as a critique on capitalism because capitalism <laughs> is the thing that makes me miserable every day because I'm a literature major. Right. Uh, but uh, that immediately jumps out to me where you have a vending machine that spits shit out at you uh, and it's always something that makes your life worse because everything I've ever bought has made me sad. Wait, so 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 each encounter then with these creatures or any entity that they're dealing with is its own story then and people keep making these new stories so i can read you one just just so you understand like what scp is so peanut is technically scp 173 so it'll like classify so it's like item number scp 173 object class it's a euclid securement special containment procedures item scp 173 is to be kept in a locked container at all times 
When personnel must enter SCP-173's container, no fewer than three may enter at a time, and the door is oh. to be reglocked behind them. Okay. At all times, two pe- two persons must maintain direct eye contact with SCP-173 until all personnel have vacated and relocked the container. Gotcha. I misunderstood. These are just, uh, they give you like an idea of what you're dealing with, and then it creates that sort of index of knowledge then mm-hmm. for these random creatures. What does it stand for again? Uh, secure, contain, protect, if I'm right. Yeah. So people create these and then put it where? Is it like a website? Yeah, it has its own wiki. Oh, it's, it, it has its own wiki. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that have its mm-hmm. own wiki, but that's interesting. So you can go and find just thousands of these things. Yeah, there's a subreddit for it. Um, then if you read like our no sleep on Reddit, yeah, that's very popular. I don't like those. There's the no sleep podcast. Like, oh, that's some freaky shit. <laughs> You know, I was thinking. I remember I I, I pitched the idea to, to both of you of yeah. running like a of running like a um like a horror RP session, sort of deal. Yeah. And um maybe what I will do is I will go peruse the S the SCP, Ooh. and then I'll find an interesting monster from there, and then I'll try to create one for a session, and then we can have a fun little like haunted house sort of issue with that particular creature. I like that. That sounds like a good idea. We should mm. definitely do something like that. Um. How did you even come across these? Um, so I came across, so creepy pastas were like my favorite thing right. at one point because you have like the scary Squidward one and all the other ones. You that know? was so, so was like, weird. Oh, that okay. one was that one especially. Yeah, they had like a secret episode. Yeah, like the fucked up looking Squidward face or whatever. Like, I have I see I I don't even fully understand what creepy pasta is except for I just know that it's like creepy narratives that are spread around, but I don't even know like any of the specifics about them like i have no idea what it means when you say the squidward one and things so, like, like that a very popular one that a lot of people know is lavender town from pokemon oh, man, which is a super one. popular creepypasta if you play the music and the town is supposed to be like the ghosts of people in pokemon and the song in the background is really creepy um there's another one that i can't think of if you've ever heard of like jeff the killer if you've heard of like those are your like standard like normal fucking everybody knows what these creepypasta and that's what it is it's like a genre of creepy writings from people uh, most of them are yeah. taken from popular culture yeah. so like things that you know or you think you know a lot about they'll add in a secret element or something that you didn't know or some a reinterpretation of what it was kind of like what they did with the bump from adult swim Ugh. where they did they explained I what the sounds so from much. were for the final bump the one that's like the dawn is your enemy yeah. so they'll they'll re-image whatever is already in existence and then change it up a bit and that's the main point of the creepypastas and they're all like on a website too if you want like a popular like a very mainstream run right now it's momo yeah there you go the kids that i teach fucking love momo and by momo uh sorry and by loving momo i mean they fucking hate momo and they are sure that momo is going to make them uh make them kill themselves uh which is also a weirdly common trope in teaching children it seems like they all talk about killing themselves you, you had you've had kids talk about that yes holy it's cow yeah well about momo or suicide because both yes yes the i didn't know yes. that was a thing oh yeah mo- so the big backlash with momo right now is that it was like a thing where it was telling children to like talk to it and it would basically be like cut yourself go kill yourself like do these oh, things and Jesus. like that's how like parents got concerned was that like a mom one of the articles i read recently was like a mom concerned that her child was talking to fucking momo like you, you know all of the all of the articles that I've read so far, uh, which is interesting that you, you, you phrase it that way, and, and you probably just have a, like an, a different entry into this that's more uh, more primal than mine, because mine's pretty pretty recent. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything that I've read about Momo is talking about either the child killing themselves or the child killing the family. Uh, and very little of it actually has to do with like non-terminal self-harm of the child. So I think it's interesting that uh, articles, per my theory currently, um, have kind of shifted over from focusing on, this is bad for kids, and that's scary, to, oh no, this is bad for family units, and it's scary. Uh, I can't stand Momo's face. uh, I usually will shut it anytime I see it. It's so fucking cute. I almost said hot. I I couldn't figure it out. Which (laughs) joke do I make? 
it's like stressful looking to me because yeah. it's not like bad like especially the original art piece it's like a woman's oh God, face yeah. like the bird fucking thing with the bird hands or whatever well, the like guy, it's weird like you know what i'm like oh so i just don't like looking at it like, didn't he have to like make a video and be like he destroyed is, it yeah yeah he was like this is just an art piece i'm destroying it like please don't make any more she the, yeah oh sorry thank you she was like please don't don't put this into like a meme anymore Ugh, yeah that's it that's one of my favorite things and least favorite things about internet culture at this point is that it has this tendency to take pieces of art and this happens a lot from momo to pepe to um the fucking there was this piece of art where a bunch of like fleshy pig humans that are unlike myself entirely because i'm a pig person but a different kind we're all suckling at this breast of this other monstrous creature. Like, art is really frequently taken and then reappropriated by internet culture to mean totally different things from what the artist initially intended. And I hate that in a way because I can imagine someone taking anything that I've ever made, which is not much because I suck, uh, <laughs> but taking anything I've ever made and just making it into, like, or something like that. It's like, no, wait, hold on. Slow the fuck down. But then the people that have these pieces of art stolen from them they never get any kind of credit for them, even if it's bad credit, right? Uh, and so the the other side of it, and I haven't made up my mind, and I'm not going to make up my mind because both sides are kind of right in this, I think. Uh, but is that because of the fact that this has entered into the kind of the cultural sphere and has been appropriated to mean different and terrifying things, maybe you should leave it out there because maybe it will either reconcile itself somewhere or maybe the fact that you have some influence. I, I mean, no one's going to be able to change art once it already exists. Like, you as the author can never... You're, you're dead as soon as you create the thing. Um, you can never alter the, the way that it's perceived once it's out there. But I feel almost as if maybe art being changed once it's in the cultural sphere is good, and you shouldn't try to kill it even if it becomes something abominable. Because it's not going to die. You know, well, with, so at least linking it to you would be good. Maybe I don't know. With the technology we have now, you put something out there and it's out there forever. So it's kind of like that. That is kind of a hard thing to go through. But I'm going to go off on a random tangent uh, about something I think we've all seen, which was the the love, death, and robots. How dare you go on tangents? I know. <laughs> you you guys have seen uh, Zima Blue, the one with the. You haven't seen that one. It's the one with the pool washing robot. It's so good. It's, it's so yeah. good. Uh, I'm finishing that whole thing tonight. You I haven't, oh, man, you because I'm watching it? it with someone. I oh, told him I wouldn't continue wow. watching it. <laughs> I mean, Zima, Zima Blue is is like the uh, the idea of like the mainstream artist sort of idea is is what was what I'm there getting. There's so many things and, packed into that. Oh, it, it's it's really dense for like a seven minute short. Yeah. It's really dense, and I I, I absolutely love the uh, the the character. The character Zima himself uh, is is just great. His whole like his whole persona and like the narrative is told really well, and I'm laughing my, myself the whole time. And then it gets to this really, really like empathetic message of you know I just really want to return to simplicity. Like everything's too complicated now. I really just want to return to like like who I am as my base. I feel like that um, art style of. The fucking, I don't know why I can't think of the type of art style it is, but the most like popular version or like most popular thing from that time is the fucking urinal by our mutt that's like flipped upside down. Oh my God. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, and I can't know, I can't think of the artist's name. Like my art history background is like failing me, but um, <laughs> I feel like that return to simplicity is like hardcore, like apparent in that. Cause you have like, you know, this mundane ass piece. It's like when you have kids that go to museums and they'll sit like their glasses on the fucking I ground, you get people that are like, Oh shit, hold on. That's art. It's like, no dude, I sat my shit on the ground. Those <laughs> like, are my favorite. I love videos <laughs> like that. Someone put a pair of sunglasses down in a corner and did that. But they like they did it on purpose, and they were watching everyone else around. <laughs> I don't know if I should if I should like describe the episode more because I'd be spoiling it for some right, people. I know. Please don't. You know, yeah, and I and okay. I really don't want to because it's it's a great short, and I yeah. you know um, from that one of my favorite shorts ever is the three robots one. I love the three my robots favorite one. Short. Tell them the description that you gave me before I watched it. Oh, uh, before the before the three robots yeah. one. 
it's like a, it's just a really nihilistic look at like a dystopian like or not dystopian but an apocalyptic setting with three robots that are just analyzing human history there was that one in the what was it the, the other one the other the one is, is this no, it's star it's star um not star wars oh my god starcraft there we go jesus starcraft farm simulator that's one of the other episodes <laughs> and it's fantastic that's so accurate this is another tangent maybe but there's something really interesting to me about the fact that you can articulate the difference between post-apocalyptic and dystopian. Because doesn't that imply that... Yeah, I mean, it implies one is different from the other, right? Yes. And, uh, and I think it's fair to say that one is different from the other, but I think that if you think about it enough, they're not. Well, yeah, because you can have a dystopian world after a post-apocalyptic event. Like the road. I think you need to have a dystopian world after an ap- a post-apocalyptic one. I think a post-apocalyptic world is a dystopian world, right? Well, could it, couldn't it turn into a utopian world at some point then? Um, I don't if know. You, if, you're, if you're annihilating your civilization, I don't have a whole lot of hope for you, well, but it could. You, yeah, you sure. Technically, yes. Oh, I mean, you have such it, a good face. What, what's up, Percy? It's just when y'all were like, oh, you know, like uh, annihilating whatever. I thought of Thanos like immediately, and I was oh just like... Oh, my God, and we're back. <laughs> Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. Wow. To to cut the Marvel movies out of this, because I I cannot (laughs) fucking do that. Uh, uh, I'm going to make it unlistenable instead of uh, (laughs) whatever that was going to be. Um, So Walter Benjamin, or Walter Benjamin, because I'm pronouncing one name in German and one in English for some reason, because I'm an idiot. Um, He came up with this idea of divine violence. And the idea is more complicated than I can communicate, and so this is going to be disarticulated in some bizarre way, and I'm sorry. Uh, But essentially, the idea of divine violence is a violence that is non-coercive, does not produce blood so far as others can see it, and does not lead to a fluctuation of power, only an an annihilation of it. Can you give me an example? There is no example. Uh, His example... Well, yeah, I was going to say, he must have had at least one. ...is bad. His examples are all wrong. Uh, but they're all from the Old Testament. Uh, you, uh, you either have, I, I'm sorry, I forget the name, uh, Korah. It was, the, it was Korah. Uh, so you have suddenly the earth opens up and swallows up a city full of uh, evildoers. And they are just simply gone. Their uh, property is not there to be misused by the people that are there to fill in the space. Uh, there is no blood to be seen. There is no vengeance to be had. They simply disappear. Or... Noah's Flood, I think. I've written some papers on that as being uh, perhaps an example. Uh, But the idea of these dystopias, right? The dystopia means that the world is soaked in blood, not that the blood is absent. And so I don't think that a utopia can exist unless you have a massive, non-coercive calamity that just expiates everything, right? Um, And so you can either have a worldwide general strike where every worker just decides to put down their wrenches and do nothing and destroy capital, or you can have everyone die. Those are the only ones I can imagine. Dystopias often do fall into a uh, sort of either either something, something like, like Dorian was saying, either you have to have something very catastrophic that affects everyone globally force this change or it's an attempt at a better life that has failed. It's you usually falls under one of those two categories. Pretty much every, everyone is put on an equal playing field, right? And that's why we like zombie movies and stuff. But that's fucking stupid. That's a wrong way of viewing the world after catastrophe. Because the only people that survive catastrophes are people that have something. Right? If there's a catastrophe, everyone uh, that is not the right... Uh, race or uh you know just the right trope in general is going to get killed by the fucking crazy motherfuckers that decide oh cool the police are all dead and i get to do whatever the fuck i want or they'll fight back and that's awesome but then they have to fight against all the rich people who are always racist pieces of shit because fuck rich people i don't like any rich people and please never anyone giving me money i want to die poor i want to die alone um, well, you but, do uh, have a degree in literature. I so. do have a degree in literature, uh, so I'm working on it. You're but, on your way. But essentially, the idea is that whenever you have an apocalyptic scenario, the people that will survive are never the people that you want to survive inside of your kind of euphoric vision of it. I think the only reason why... Okay, I'm going to argue It's again. always a dystopia. No, I have to argue against it. Because I think, I think the reason why you think 
that's what's going on is because the only version of dystopian stories that we ever get is of terrible people because otherwise the story would be really boring because then you just have like these nice people who are enjoying their lives in stereo which doesn't make for good media and like good storytelling essentially i'm saying that all dystopian narratives are are wrong i think that they're written the wrong way i get you um where you have people that are shitty because all people are shitty and that's why we have to deal with a dystopia or a post-apocalyptic narrative um but people aren't shitty enough there's not enough stratification everyone thinks that i will get to be shitty when the world ends and then things will be fine but okay yeah no i get you but uh, to bring it all back it's it's interesting to me yet again with the whole repetition narrative right where uh, a thing that you own is the thing that you become right or a thing that you perceive is what you become or when you have like the thing per se it's this story that essentially has two men who are looking out into a field and they see something moving around, and they're not sure what it is, and then after a while, it continues following them, and so one of the men follows it in order to see if it's real, and he wants to touch it, but I don't actually believe he does in the text, which is bizarre to me, Uh, but uh, whatever. And so they continue walking, and they go home, and then they see that the thing is standing outside their house, and it's this weird skeletal form, and it's frightening, yada yada, uh, but the important thing is that once uh, they're home, the thing never sees them again, as far as we know, and uh, one of the characters gets sick and dies and looks just like the thing after he's dead, um, which goes along with this whole memory repeating itself thing, right? Can you do your reading? Do we want Do we want a live reading right now? Yes. I absolutely want a live reading right okay. now. What's, which story do you guys want to hear first? Her song. I want to hear the singing. It's true. I think we all want to hear the singing. Serenade us. <clears throat> Don't you ever laugh as the hearse goes by, for you may be the next to die. They wrap you up in a big white sheet from your head down to your feet. They put you in a big black box and cover you up with dirt and rocks. It all goes well for about a week. Then you cough and it begins to leak. The worms crawl and the worms crawl out. The worms play pinnacle. Am I pronouncing that right? On your snout, they eat your eyes, they eat your nose, they eat the jelly between your toes. A big green worm with rolling eyes crawls in your stomach and out your eyes. Your stomach turns a slimy green and pus pours out like whipping cream. You spread it on a slice of bread. And that's what you eat when you're dead. <laughs> that's great. Oh, I thank love you, that. Thank you. Uh, I love that I got to hear two different versions of this song. I heard the I heard the audiobook version and I heard yours just now, which <laughs> which is even funnier by the fact of you interrupting your own thing to be like, did I pronounce that right? Yeah, I mean, doubt always makes things better, you know. I think Dorian should read The Walk, because I think he does a really good reading of oh, that Oh, really? One. I think he does a good reading All of right. The Walk, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, go ahead and read The Walk. My uncle was walking down a lonely dirt road one day. He came upon a man who was walking down that road. The man looked at my uncle. My uncle looked at him. The man was scared of my uncle. And my uncle was scared of the man. But they kept on walking, and it began to get dark. The man looked at my uncle, and my uncle looked at the man. The man was very scared of my uncle, and my uncle was very scared of the man. But they kept on walking, and they came to a big woods. It was getting darker. The man looked at my uncle, and my uncle looked at the man. And the man was really scared of my uncle, and my uncle was really scared of the man. But they kept on walking, and deep down into the woods they went. It was getting darker, and the man looked at my uncle, and my uncle looked at the man. The man was terrible scared of my uncle, and my uncle was terrible scared of... I I secretly turned down the volume on my head. Oh, good. I should have looked away. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, for me and Percy. Oh, God, Percy. Oh, Oh, okay, good. Yeah. 
Do you does anybody here remember a time when someone actually had a sit down ghost story with you guys? Like you actually did the cold the whole traditional ghost story thing? But I've never actually had like a real sit down ghost story before. What so you never I've never had that experience. Like not around a campfire, no not in, like with nope. your friends. I've done like I've done like, you know, I did like the camp thing where there's like a counselor that has a guitar and does that. But wow. I've never done like the let's tell the scary story. Really campy. And then everyone shits themselves. No, I never had that. Percy, have you had an experience like that? Yeah, kind of. What happened? Like, we sat around and told a ghost story? Like, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Well, that's what he's asking. Yeah, I mean, I was at a fucking camp thing. They tried to be like, ooh, sp- spooky ghosts. And, you know, we had a story, and then somebody came jumping out the trees, and she got the shit socked out of her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. Someone jumped out to scare you guys, and they got socked? Yeah. Like, a kid stood up and, like, punched her dead in the fucking throat. <laughs> that was the only time I've ever had a ghost story. Can you imagine the counselor that had to fucking do that? Yeah, dude. Then... Like, it was a fuck. Like, this child was already, so he was a first, like, when I met this child, I always remember him because his name was Marvin. When he was a first grader, he was five foot nine as a fucking first grader. This child was ginormous. There was something wrong. Either he was just really fucking stupid and he was actually older than he was, but he was a ginormous like first grader. Wait, how old are you in first grade? Like fucking six, seven, seven maybe. Sorry, I'm sorry. Not first, like third or fourth grade. Let's say like third or fourth, older. somewhere around there. Yeah. So he's like so, 12. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Like fucking, no, like 10. Whatever. But it was, like, nuts because he, he was, like, a scaredy-ass kid, too. So, like, you know, they have this fucking dumbass counselor that's, like, I'm going to hide in these trees while they tell this little story because that's the way to go. And they do that nonsense. And, you know, they're telling the story. And they, ah, you know, and then she comes down from the fucking trees. And that kid stood up and just went, bop, and just bopped her straight in the fucking neck. <laughs> like, was not having it. <laughs> My brother, uh... He's uh, he's ten years older than I am, and so when I was growing up, so my, he's like sixty. Yeah, he's Jesus he's Christ. ten thousand and ten years old. Uh, but uh, no, he's ten years older than I am, and so when I was you know five, he's fifteen, which is the cruelest age. I don't know which one I'm referencing, but uh, they're both pretty fucked up. And so uh, when uh, when I'm this little child, he's uh, as close to an adult as you can be uh, and still be a child. And uh, so he kept on telling me horrifying stories and shit. So my entire upbringing from like three on has been horrifying stories and being told by my parents that uh, if I say no to the cults that we live in, I'd uh, get uh, reincarnated as a cripple for seven decades. So or seven generations, I'm sorry. So, yeah, no, scary stories are a big part of my life. Uh, Now I think about it. I've had a lot of moments. Where people were telling scary stories in a group setting. Were you Catholic? Yes. Yeah, exactly. That, that, <laughs> there couldn't have been a more perfect question or setup for that because that is like half of their teachings is scaring the shit out of you. And then having these events where you're all gathered together doing weird shit like this. I went to a lot of those camps, like the Catholic school, whatever the fuck they send you off. And it's like they had one in sixth grade, they had one in eighth grade. They had another one in high school, and then we had to go to mass every Wednesday at my Catholic private high school. I just distinctly remember the religion teacher, because we had a religion teacher, got really upset with me because I asked him about Lilith and why he was not talking about this woman. And he was like, how the fuck do you know about that? First of all, you're like 10. Uh, and, And then got into it and was like saying she didn't exist and it was all these collection of stories that weren't included in the bible and i was like but isn't the bible like the best of collection i was gonna ask like did he mention that it's all apocryphal and maybe added uh in post but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no that that's a big thing um i don't know dude like the i guess that's the problem with a lot of those religious texts because i read a lot of them um you know, the Mahabharata is something I focus on a lot and a lot of uh, Christian texts I focus on a lot. Um, and I try to view them with kind of like a more formal, neutral gaze. Uh, but at the same time, you can't do much unless you're viewing the culture around them. And Christian culture is so like weird and narcissistic and toxic inside of our like wider culture that it's hard to view it in any way that's subjective. Uh, but yeah, so the little story and shit, I don't know, dude, fucking like, it's not part of it, but also 
it's definitely part of it if you don't like that stuff. <laughs> this just makes me think of those shows that they have on, I guess, the History Channel and Discovery Channel that just uh, pose questions and then make you ask more questions and never answer anything. Like the Was Hitler series. a Nazi? <laughs> exactly. Was he an occultist Nazi? The answers are yes, but is there more? Yes. The answer is yes. Is there more? Because <laughs> we need to make more money <laughs> and keep this show running and to stay um, on the network. Here's where I say a joke about ancient aliens, but I'm not going to because I'm too fucking tired. I'm just so fucking tired. I can't do it. Oh, is that what that... You know what I like about those shows? Go with the hair? You like yeah. the hair. No, no. What I like about those shows oh. is the, the little titles that they'll bring up so that you can know their official title. And sometimes, sometimes it'll be something official. It'll be like Dr. Something. But other times, it says something like, I don't know, um, writer of such and such book. Dorian Bell, continued child. <laughs> and it's like, it has no bearing on what they're supposed to be talking about. And they just go into all this nonsense. So they're really just interviewing all of these hacks who don't really know what they're talking about. Or they let them talk for like 30 minutes and they're like, that's the episode. Thank you. I mean, to be fair, like how many people with PhDs are like running or... Uh the entirety of our government in like a terrifying like neoliberal way would, based entirely on the fact that they have a degree that doesn't matter i really want to know the statistics for how many people currently in office hold degrees not one of them well no he does he, he has a degree from a cool ass business school because he's very smart and talented so i just want to remind everybody that we're e really easy to find now because we're on every streaming service. So wherever you listen to podcasts, go ahead and search up Bringing Down the Grindhouse. So the main ones, Spotify, Google Play Music, iTunes. Easy to find. Really appreciate all of you coming out to talk with us tonight. And I hope you guys have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was beautiful. What do you come for? There was an old woman who lived all by herself, and she was very lonely. Sitting in the kitchen one night, she said, Oh, I wish I had some company. No sooner had she spoken than down the chimney tumbled two feet from which the flesh had rotted. The old woman's eyes bulged with terror. Then two legs dropped to the hearth and attached themselves to the feet. Then a body tumbled down, and then two arms, and a man's head. As the woman watched, the parts came together into a great, gangling man. The man danced around and around the room. Faster and faster he went. Then he stopped, and he looked into her eyes. What do you come for? She asked in a small voice and shivered and shook. What do I come for? He said. I come for you! Aaron Kelly was dead. They bought him a coffin and had a funeral for him and buried him. But that night, got out of his coffin, and he came home. His family was sitting around the fire when he walked in. He sat down next to his widow and said, What's going on? You all act like somebody died. Who's dead? His widow said, You are. I don't feel dead, he said. I feel fine. You don't look fine, his widow said. You look dead. You better get back to the grave where you belong. I'm not going to go back to the grave until I feel dead, he said. Since Aaron wouldn't go back, his widow couldn't collect his life insurance. Without that, she couldn't pay for the coffin. Aaron didn't care. He just sat by the fire, rocking in a chair and warming his hands and feet. But his joints were dry and his back was stiff, and every time he moved, he creaked and cracked. One night, the best fiddler in town came to court the widow. 
Since Aaron was dead, the fiddler wanted to marry her. The two of them sat on one side of the fire, and Aaron sat on the other side, creaking and cracking. How long do we have to put up with this dead corpse? The widow asked. Something must be done, the fiddler said. This isn't very jolly, Aaron said. Let's dance! The fiddler got out his fiddle and began to play. Aaron stretched himself shook himself, got up, took a step or two, and began to dance. With his old bones rattling and his yellow teeth snapping and his bald head waggling and his arms flip-flopping, around and around he went. With his long legs clicking and his knee bones knocking, he skipped and pranced around the room. How that dead man danced! But pretty soon a bone worked loose and fell to the floor. Look at that, said the fiddler. Play faster, said the widow, and the fiddler played faster. Crickety-crack, down and back, the dead man went hopping, and his dry bones went dropping. This way, that way, the pieces kept popping, Play, man, play, cried the widow. The fiddler fiddled and the dead man danced. Then Aaron fell apart, collapsed into a pile of bones, all except his bald head bone. That grinned at the fiddler, cracked its teeth, and kept dancing. Look at that, groaned the fiddler. Play louder, cried the widow. Ho, 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 said the head bone. Ain't we having fun? The fiddler couldn't stand it. Widow, I... Widow, he said, I'm going home. And he never came back. The family gathered up Aaron's bones and put them back in the coffin. They mixed them up so he couldn't fit them together. After that, Aaron stayed in his grave. But his widow never did get married again. Aaron had seen to that. A new horse. Two farmhands shared a room. One slept at the back of the room. The other slept near the door. After a while, the one who slept near the door began to feel very tired early in the day. His friend asked what was going wrong. An awful thing happens every night, he said. A witch turns me into a horse and rides me all over the countryside. I'll sleep in your bed tonight, his friend said. We'll see what happens to me. About midnight, an old woman who lived nearby came into the room. She mumbled some strange words over the farmhand, and he found he couldn't move. Then she slipped a bridle on him, and he turned into a horse. The next thing he knew, he was riding across the fields at breakneck speed, she was beating him to make him go even faster. Soon they came to a house where a party was going on. There was a lot of music and dancing. They were having a big time inside. She hitched him to a fence and went in. While she was gone, the farmhand rubbed against the fence until the bridle broke off, and he turned back into a human being. Then he went into the house and found the witch. She, he spoke those strange words over her. And with the bridle, he turned her into a horse. Then he rode her to a blacksmith and had her fitted with horseshoes. After that, he rode her to the farm where she lived. I have a pretty good filly here, he told her husband, but I need a stronger horse. Would you like to trade? The old man looked over, and he said that he would do it. So they picked out another horse, and the farmhand rode away. Her husband led his new horse to the barn. He took off the bridle and went to hang it up. But when he came back, the new horse was gone. Instead, there stood his wife with horseshoes, nailed to her hands and feet.